Welcome to Practical Christian Living. And so as Jesus enters into the garden, one of the things that we find out in one of the other gospels is that he would go here regularly. This is one of the regular places that he went to pray. And I wonder if you have a regular place that you pray. In our study, we're going to talk about the importance of prayer, the importance of us seeking God, even as we are facing difficulties. And sometimes it's important to have a good place to be able to go. We have a great high priest who understands every heartache we go through. Even Jesus took every heartache and request to the Father in prayer when he was on this earth. Today on Practical Christian Living in our series, Jesus Appointments, we are looking at the appointment Jesus had with his disciples in the garden. And we look at the importance and significance of having a time and even a special place to pray, just as Jesus modeled for us. With Matthew 26, 36 through 56, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, thank you so much for the time that we are able to spend here today in your word. We open up our Bibles because it is our desire that we would hear from you. We want to know what you say in the scriptures that you have preserved from generation to generation. They are alive and they are active and they work in our lives. And, and as we consider the four gospels and the things that were written that happened in Gethsemane, we pray that we would be spoken to by them. We would consider where we are as we reflect upon what Jesus went through and what happened in that garden. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I grew up, I would walk by that iconic picture of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. When I say that iconic picture, it's the one that I've seen around. It's Jesus with his hands folded over a rock. It was in our hallway. And the whole time I grew up, I would walk by it. And then in Sunday school, they often would have those pictures around the Methodist church that I attended. And I also remember one of the stained glass windows in the sanctuary was of him praying in Gethsemane. And I guess it would be moonlight because the Passover's on a full moon, moonlight that would be shining down on Jesus as he sought God there. But I can tell you, seeing those pictures, seeing that stained glass window, I never understood the significance of what really was taking place there and how powerful it really was. The name Gethsemane comes from two Greek names, Hebrew names actually. One is get, which means press, and semene, which means olive. Or I might have said that backwards. I should leave the Greek and Hebrew to those who know Greek and Hebrew, but it means olive press is what it means. The place of pressing of the olives. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus there. They would use the oil from an olive press like that to make the oil to anoint things and people for the law, under the law. And Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, who finds himself in an olive grove with an oil press, and he is being pressed there. We could say that he is being crushed there, that the suffering, the passion, doesn't begin when he is arrested and they begin to beat him, but it begins as he begins to submit to the will of the Father and his own will when he is in the garden. 
So I want to pick it up. I want to talk about several things that happen here, but I want to pick it up in Matthew 26, verse 36. You've got to read all four of the Gospels to get everything that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll talk about some of them, but we won't turn to all four of them. So in Matthew 26, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And so as Jesus enters into the garden, one of the things that we find out in one of the other Gospels is that he would go here regularly. This is one of the regular places that he went to pray. And I wonder if you have a regular place that you pray. In our study, we're going to talk about the importance of prayer, the importance of us seeking God, even as we are facing difficulties. And sometimes it's important to have a good place to be able to go. Still, one of the most powerful places for me praying is when I'm walking. Taking a walk and praying is powerful for me. You got to do whatever you can do to make sure that you have that interaction with God that is so necessary. But Jesus has something happening inside of him. And I believe it is a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53.3 says that he was a man of sorrow and he was acquainted with grief. God didn't take on flesh in the form of Jesus for him just to come in fellowship with man. And he came that he might partake of what we partake of. And he created a world that would eventually have sorrow, suffering, and grieving for really for all of us we experience joy praise God for that joy we experience the sunshine we experience the beautiful world he has created but the Bible says that rain falls on the just and the unjust and hard times come upon the just and the unjust as well and that Jesus came and partook of that in a world that he created he partook of the pain of of the cross in a world that he created so that when we say, why am I suffering? At least we know that he came and took and was a part of it. It also says in Isaiah 53, 3, surely he has carried our griefs and bore our sorrows. I believe that as Jesus entered into the garden of Gethsemane, that God began to lay upon him the grief and the sorrow of all of us, that he began to bear it all. It was a true crushing. It was a true pressing that was taking place upon him. When I say that, I'm not saying that he has taken all of our sorrow and grief so that when you and I face grief or difficulties or hard times that we don't grief and we don't sorrow because we do, but that he helps to carry it for us. He comes alongside of us and he has actually bore our grief and our sorrow. When someone loses a spouse, I'm able to say to them, I understand what you're going through. I understand the grief that they're facing because I've gone through it. Jesus literally takes our grief and our sorrow. He doesn't say to me, I know what you're going through. He actually experiences it with me. And I believe that that is what's taking place here. Luke twenty two forty four says, talking about the same event when he began to be so sorrowful. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. There is a medical condition where you can become so intense 
that your sweat becomes like blood. It is rare, but many believe that Jesus was so intense and in such agony that that is literally what happened to him. It may be an analogy that his, he was so into his prayer, he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood upon the ground. Here Jesus is taking our sorrow and our grief and he is carrying it with us and it is extremely powerful. In verse uh, 39, it says of Matthew 26, he went a little further and he fell on his face. And the, the, the word there in the Greek, I'm not going to tell you what it was or what it means. I'm just going to tell you that it's translated well there. He fell on his face. He literally walked up and fell down in front of God and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Before we talk about what this cup is, the second thing that we see that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus prays here. He's about to face one of the most difficult times in his life. And sometimes difficulties catch us off guard. Sometimes we are aware of them. Sometimes we know that they are coming. And sometimes life turns on a dime and we are surprised by them. Jesus knew what was coming. And so he wanted to go in and pray and prayer is such a powerful thing. We're going to see him rebuke his disciples for not praying here in a few minutes. But Jesus began by having that interaction with the Father. And that is what the great gift of prayer is given to us for, that we can enter in and have an interaction with the living God. Prayer should never be mechanical. It should never just be, this is, you know, uh, give me this, give me that, bless me, Lord, and that's that. It shouldn't just ever be, I'm checking a list off. I'm going out and I'm praying. There, I got my prayers done. I've done my religious duty. If you do that, you become like the Pharisees. But prayer is something that is so incredible that we can actually go out and tell God how we feel. I talked to so many people after services and I talked to so many people who kind of poured out their heart to me, told me what they were going through. And I think, I wonder if we talk to any of us, if we really get down into our lives, we find that all of us in here have something going on. Something's going on. Have you talked about that to God? Have you gone to your father who is in heaven and with a passion poured that out before him? That's what Jesus does. And I think whatever comes our way, whether it is good or whether it is bad, we ought to share it with the father. There are so many promises about prayer. Ask and you will receive, the Bible says. If you, as an earthly father, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father give good gifts to you? Ask and you will receive a promise that God is going to answer your prayer that we do not have because we do not ask. We don't have when we ask because we ask amiss wanting to spend it on our own pleasures. So we want to find out what the will of God is. And we see that in Jesus' prayer. Gethsemane for Jesus was a time of prayer. And maybe it's good for us to evaluate and say once again as Christians, I want to pray. I want to make sure we're praying. But not as in a religious way to just check the box off, but in a way where we say, I want it to really count. I want to really have that interaction with God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know the one true God. It doesn't say this is eternal life, that you know about the one true God. I've been to a lot of Bible studies. I've, I've studied the scriptures. 
I know all about God. Well, that's good. But do you know God? And the only way you can know him is if you have that interaction. And we can certainly say that God the Son knew God the Father and was able to pour himself out before him. And so he prays a couple of things here. It says he fell on his face and he said, Oh, my Father. That's how Jesus taught us to pray as well. Our Father who is in heaven. He had that relationship as the Son with the Father and we have a heavenly Father. If possible, he says, let this cup pass from me. Now, what is he asking? There have been suggestions over time as to exactly what this cup is. Some people believe that it is a cup of suffering, that Jesus was looking at the suffering. He would be beaten beyond the point of looking like a man, the Bible says. He would have the beard pulled from his face. They would put a bag over his head. They would punch him and say, prophet, prophesy, which one of us hit you? If you see a punch coming, you can pull away from it. You can dodge it a little bit. But if you can't, you take the full force of the punch. He would be scourged. And then he would be nailed to that tree where he would hang for six hours before he would finally place his spirit in the hands of God. Anyone looking at that suffering would say, if it's possible, then take this suffering from me. Although I think suffering is included, I don't believe that that's what the cup represents. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, take this cup of suffering away from me. Some believe that it was the cup of sorrow and grief, that he was so full of sorrow, he falls out down on the ground in agony, that he's ready to die, he's so sorrowful, he's so overwhelmed, that he says, Lord, take this cup of sorrow and grief from me. And although I believe that what Jesus will go through over the next day will be sorrow and grief, this is nighttime. By nine o'clock in the morning, he'll be on the cross. I believe that the identification of the cup can be by looking at what cups are in the scriptures. And you find in the Old Testament that the Bible says that there is a cup of the wrath of God and that there is a cup of the judgment of God. And in Revelations, it says that God poured out his cup of wrath upon the earth. Jesus literally was taking the judgment that you and I should take upon the cross. He was taking our penalty. You and I, because of our sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty for sin is death. And you and I had to die. And Jesus gave his life. That's very important. He gave his life. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. So he gave his life so that you and I did not have to have the wrath of God flow upon us. Rather than us facing judgment, we have been freed from the judgment that is to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9. Rather than us drinking of the cup of God's wrath for sin. And we all know our sin nature. And the more holy God is, the more we realize our own sin nature. And that Jesus literally stood in the way and took the wrath of the Father. Now there's accusations today that this makes God some kind of cosmic child abuser because he poured out his wrath upon his Son. But it's important to remember that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all made a plan to rescue you and I from the penalty of judgment and that Jesus laid down his life. 
He chose to do it. He chose to be that sacrifice for you and me. And that every Old Testament sacrifice that there is points to Jesus being a sacrifice upon that cross. No wonder Jesus cried out upon the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, fulfilling Psalms 22 and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He knew something he never knew and that was to take the wrath and the judgment, the guilt and the shame of sin. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he endured the cross despising the shame, the shame of the guilt of sin. There's not one of us in here who doesn't know what it is like to feel the shame and the guilt of some sin. We felt it. We know what it's like to think, I wish I would have never have done that and I would give anything to take that back. But you did it and you're guilty. And Jesus took it all. And as he was getting ready to take it, it wasn't just the suffering. Yes, suffering is included. Yes, the sorrow and grief would overwhelm him over the next few hours. But it is the judgment that he is taking upon himself, receiving the penalty of our sin upon his own life. Listen to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the one I quoted earlier. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, he did it for us. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The word chastisement is beating. He was beaten for our peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed, both spiritually and physically, because in heaven there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more illness. God chooses to heal some today, but he also chooses to not heal some. You could say to heal them completely by bringing them into heaven. And in heaven there will be a healing. By his stripes we are healed. And listen to verse 6, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward that when Jesus says, if possible, Take this cup from me. Now, what we know is that it wasn't possible because it didn't happen. He had to receive the cup. He had to drink the cup of the judgment of God, drink the cup of the wrath of God. So we know it wasn't possible. That means that there's no other way under heaven whereby men can be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. If there were any other way, then God the Father would have said, well, you know what? I think we can save people through sincerity. If they believe whatever they believe sincere enough, then they can be saved. Which is always kind of funny when you hear somebody say, I just believe whatever you believe as long as you're sincere about it, then you're saved by it. If I sincerely believe that I can fly and I jump off a skyscraper, all the sincerity in the world is not going to stop the consequences. So it is with sincerity in the wrong thing. 
We have to put our faith and our trust in the one who has revealed himself in Scripture and given us prophecy that is more than reasonable for us to be able to say, I trust you and I believe you and I put my life into your hands. In verse 40, he says, well, let's go back for a moment. He says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This also reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so Jesus says, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Part of our prayer is to find out what God wants. And it took me a long time as a Christian to discover if God wanted something for me, I wanted it. And if God didn't want something for me, I didn't want it. Can anybody say amen to that? If God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it, even if I want it. And that sounds confusing, but I know you're tracking with me. You still want it, but you know God doesn't want it for you. And so you're saying, whatever your will is. I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were getting ready to be thrown into the fire, remember? They said, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will serve him. That should be the heart and the attitude of every believer. Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will serve him. Not my will, God, but your will be done. And part of it is finding out what his will is. In fact, the Bible tells us that if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the things that he has asked for us in the book of 1 John. So then we come to verse 40. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for an hour? And I laugh at that because a lot of times the New King James that I use doesn't sound like today's English at all. It's said in such a way that sounds foreign. But this sounds like today. Like somebody, what? What? You couldn't watch with me for an hour? I didn't ask you to pray all night. I didn't ask you to watch all night. I asked you to watch for an hour. What, you couldn't watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This tells us that prayer helps us face temptation. If that is the only thing that we gained from prayer, it is worth us praying that we would be able to win over temptation. Could you not watch with me for an hour lest you enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't point my finger at Peter and go cluck my tongue at him or judge him because I've slept when I'm supposed to pray. I used to get up early in the morning to pray. And I found myself doing that more and more as I get older. Those of you who are older, you understand that, right? Sleep seems to evade us in the morning as we get older. But when I was younger, I would try to get up in the morning and pray. And I would go into my study and I would get my coffee and I would open up my Bible. And I would start to read the passage and I would start to pray while I was reading. And then I would put my head on the edge of the Bible and I would wake up with a crease across the top of my forehead because I just couldn't stay awake. What is it about prayer that when we begin to enter into it, it just seems to be such a struggle to do? I've got to think there's some spiritual warfare going on. I've got to think the enemy knows, I don't want this man, this woman praying. I want them sleeping. I want them thinking about something else. I want them anything but praying. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.